You can kick your fancy ales, you can drink them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the Green Dragon. Welcome to the Green Dragon Podcast. This is Articon. 2019 in 2020, part two. Uh, I'm Jeremy, and with me is Chris. Hi. Chris is one of the newest members of the Australian team who started playing Lord of the Rings in Australia, but but has uh, managed to escape the country, unfortunately, living the dream and, and getting out of here. So we'll hear from Chris very shortly. And now we have our special guest from the Australian team, Chris. Now, Chris, you are not in Australia at the moment. No, I recently relocated to Edinburgh, Scotland, which is not in Australia. Have you lost your accent yet? Uh, look, I, I've been told uh, when I'm in the UK that I sound Australian and when I'm in Australia that I sound uh, somewhat British, especially when uh, talking to school children uh, as a teacher, not in, it, so, not in any uh, inappropriate way. That's probably not a Green Dragon friendly joke, is it? Oh, no, that, that one will pass. That will pass the census. That'll be fine. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, yes, I've recently relocated over here, partly for reasons of work and partly because, uh, yeah, to pursue my Lord of the Rings dreams and my strategy battle game ambitions. Oh, fantastic. You know that you didn't have to go all that way for it. We've got some plenty over here. See, this is something I only discovered uh, after I'd already committed to moving. Uh, we, we planned to head over here, and then uh, Nick, the uh, sometimes uh, guest on The Green Dragon, uh, was telling me that basically there are loads and loads of people playing Lord of the Rings in Australia still, which is something I, I didn't realise. No one told me, and so now I'm, uh, now I'm over here. <laughs> we tried to tell you, we, but uh, I guess the podcast format didn't quite reach it there. <laughs> No, I, I, I foolishly hadn't uh, hadn't searched for it and was was too caught up in Warhammer Fantasy Battle and uh, Age of Sigma uh, for my sins. Yes, well, you also had your own podcast for quite a long time, and uh, I think that's still going now, but without you at the moment. It is, unfortunately, despite the uh, you know some of the talent heading overseas, they're they're soldiering on at the the dwellers below. Uh, for anyone who has some Age of Sigma side interests, that might be uh, might be something to check out if you want. Uh, zero tactical advice and lots of lots of silly goings on. Yeah, it's been been going on for quite a while. We've got a lot of uh, podcast creators from Australia, so it's another another good one in the, the typical Australian format, which is uh, lots of sound, but maybe maybe a little bits of content occasionally. Full, full of sound and fury, signifying precious little. Mm, yes, yes, but it's it's a good listen, and like I say, with with some of the other stuff, it's great to put on while you're doing some painting because uh, I, I really like the audio medium for that. Anytime I look at a screen, it slows down my painting quite a bit. So so keep the audio going and and have some fun with that. I'm exactly the same. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now before you started Lord of the Rings, you you mentioned just before that that you weren't aware of the scene. What was what was your opinion? Did it was, was the game dead in your opinion, or uh, what, what have you heard? What rumors? So um, I, I hadn't even got as far as rumours for a long time. Uh, Lord of the Rings was the first Games Workshop game I played uh, back in 2001. I literally walked out of the cinema having just watched The Fellowship of the Ring and then into the Games Workshop that was next to the cinema 
bought the box set with Last Alliance Warriors and Warrior Goblins and thought that that was, that was going to be it. I was going to play this game forever. And then all of my friends wanted to play 40k instead. So I did that for a long time. Um, and just, but not forgot that the game existed, but just ne- never had people around me playing it to remember that it was there and to remember how good it was as well. Uh, because even even through th- those sort of early years, like 12, 15, uh, playing Warhammer and 40K, I-, I always remembered that I much preferred the rule set for Lord of the Rings. Uh, but it was just, yeah, the people around me weren't playing it, and so that made it much harder to commit to that when I could play a still fun game uh, with the friends I already had. At this point in time, I didn't realize that there were uh, tournaments for any game system where you could go out and make new friends in the game rather than just uh, playing what your existing friends did. Yeah, I don't think we marketed ourselves that well at that time. I feel like a lot of it was people playing at home or playing at a club that, that didn't advertise particularly well. And I think we're getting better at that. You can do some searches on YouTube now and find lots of people playing. Or uh, if you go to gaming clubs, people seem to be more aware of it now. So I think it's probably a bit better time for us for, for the publicity side of it. So the sheer amount of content that is out there at the moment, as well as the fairly regular releases, means that there's a lot more buzz and a lot more chat than I ever remember about the game in in the distant distant past. And more recently as well, we're starting to get things like uh, live tournament coverage, which, again, really just helps build. And for uh, for someone who was... Uh, like trying to get into tournaments but hadn't actually played any yet like watching the coverage of the grand tournament i think it was from last year really started to uh, give me the bug to get along to you know as many tournaments as i could and really yeah get as i guess as deep into the scene as possible i remember just before you left for the uk i had you over for a gaming night and played through a little bit of prep what sort of gaming have you done since then before your experiences at articon i moved to scotland and I played a couple of games in Edinburgh and then a, a small tournament in Manchester because there was one on a couple of weeks before Articon and I really just needed to, like, needed to practice, needed to learn the rules. And so I, I think I'd played maybe 10 or 15 games of uh, Lord of the Rings before Articon itself started, basically, and then played almost as many games again over that weekend. I also had to spend a lot of time painting uh, beforehand because I got rid of my old collection and had to uh, had to rebuild and in this case especially build a semi-competitive tournament army because after all as part of Team Australia that was uh, that was the real big deal we needed to make sure we were firing on all cylinders. <laughs> yeah, Team Australia is serious business. Uh, so what uh, faction <laughs> did you start preparing? So um, I managed, I I was very fortunate to be given a bunch of old plastic models uh, from a friend who was uh, never going to come back to the game. And so my my collection of my army thoughts basically started with that. And there was a a sprue or two of plastic Uruk-hai and uh, a couple of the uh, metal Isengard characters, uh, like I think alerts and a captain or something like that. And so that was, basically where I started and you know, I, I started by painting those up and then um, although over time I've moved further and further away from that and more into some of the other evil armies but basically all year I've been playing yellow evil alliances uh, and that's what I what I ended up taking to Articon uh, so I was just playing through lots of different variations of 
uh, Isengard and Mordor alliances, uh, trying things like troll chieftains and different ring wraiths and uh, you know, different Isengard characters and just trying to work out which ones were actually good because I still don't exactly know now uh, all of the different things that characters can do on the tabletop uh, beyond just kind of understanding the rules, but actually working out how to use them. I'm still very much finding that a work in progress. I'll have to listen to some Green Dragons. We've got a Mortar episode coming up very soon, <laughs> which is exciting. I've been been spending a lot of the year playing with that as well. So getting getting all the, the little hints and subtleties of the, the, uh, the force, it basically you push forward and see how it goes. Yes, unfortunately, that's uh, that's the way I learn best when it comes to really any game system is to try and fail and try again. And when it comes to picking up a game system or trying to, uh, yeah, trying to get ready for a tournament at short notice, that kind of iterative you know, learning from failure, um, unfortunately, sometimes extends into the first few rounds of a tournament. It's it's all the timing. I actually think the the learning from failure is the best way to do it as well. I am um, when I'm preparing for a tournament. If I do get a, an army or two going, I'll purposely play in a way that I'm not planning to, just to see what it can do and and do a bit of stress test. So things like a shooting army, yeah. I'll just run forward and see if I can get myself out of a hole or um, purposely move badly for the first couple of turns, and then try to dig it out just to to get that experience because you do learn so much from, from things that don't work and you don't learn a whole lot for when it does work because it's hard to pinpoint what actually worked. Yeah, I, I I don't quite do it as deliberately as it sounds like you do. And from listening to some of the, like uh, Kylie's pre-Articon training uh, montage this year as well, uh, it, it sounds like you have a really good idea of how to go about stress testing and playing through different uh, scenarios, in the, not in the kind of Battle of Helm's Deep sense of scenario, but just like different things that can happen on, the, happen on the tabletop. I'm a bit less deliberate, but I very much find in a casual game that if I'm on the fence between knowing what is the correct option, whether I should you know, back off and uh, conserve models or if I should fang them in and see what they can do, I always are on the side of just charging in and seeing how it goes. Or if I see some crazy combination of moves that might just work i'll usually try it out to see if it does work or if it can work and what kind of things can go wrong so that i can try to avoid that in the future uh, ideally if i knew the game well enough i would be able to already sort of see that in advance but yeah i, I think uh, that's what the best thing about practice games is not only learning from uh, learning from that but also you then get the crazy stories and the extremely uh, aggressive games where you charge your entire army into theirs and uh, and get to see what happens. Whereas in a tournament, you might back off and shoot for a couple of extra turns and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's really rewarding when you get that that fluky occurrence or, or something that was just unusual that that paid off. And and I know that that Kyle and I talk about that sort of stuff on the Green Dragon all the time because we just met, we just like remember those sort of things that happen that you just did not expect. And sometimes they become a, a staple tactic. So it's always worth giving it a try. That's how I, I sort of ended up uh, after Articon. My army has evolved a lot as I've, mostly as I've painted more things to add to it. But uh, an offhand comment from uh, Chris Murph at one of the, the Scots about uh, taking a catapult in a mortar army uh, got me thinking uh, to the extent that I, I just wanted to try it just because I couldn't get the idea out of my mind that it might actually be something I wanted in my army and played it in a practice game and it was great. And then I 
played it in some more, and now it's it's ended up becoming an absolute staple of the list I write, um, all because, yeah, I just took it in a practice game to see what would happen, and what happened was absolute carnage. Well, that's really good. So what did you run for Articon? Uh, so, so I ended up with a sort of a mixed battle line of Isengard, Uruk-hai, and Morin on Orcs. Um, so I'll, I'll run through the specific list. Uh, it involved a Witch King on a Fell Beast with Full Might and Fate. Uh, if, if we go through game by game, the uh, the Full Fate will very much come into uh, come into relief in one of the stories. Uh, with the Crown of Morgul, because you always take that. Um, <laughs> As I uh, as I discovered when I didn't take it, uh, so the Witch King on the Fell Beast with a couple of Knights of Mordor, Morgul Knights, whatever they're called, six Morinon Orcs and three ordinary Mordor Orcs, and then the Isengard component, which was Lurts with five crossbows, five pikes, four shields and a banner, and Vrasku with three crossbows, four shields and four pikes. Okay, so you've got the typical Mordor force, but with the the sort of the shooty element of the Isengard backing it up. Yeah, I, I've always found that when I don't have uh, any shooting, I really miss it. And I find that the way the game plays out when I have better shooting than my opponent, I really enjoy uh, having the initiative in that sense where I'm able to force them to come to me. It doesn't mean sitting back at the board necessarily, but a lot of, a lot of the time it means um, being able to make sure that they can't sit at the back or uh, especially in this kind of an army, forcing them into a big mob of pikes and shields and fight for strength for infantry. Uh, so the Mordor list by itself at this point in time, I didn't think they had any way that they could do that in a pure Mordor list, although the Catapult's actually doing that quite well. Um, but just, yeah, having 10 crossbow shots and then backing it up with a Fell Beast uh, felt really good. I always like uh, dragons in shooting armies because you can force people into bad positions that you can take advantage of with the Fell Beast pretty well. And the army's also got 9 Might, which is quite a lot at sort of 750 points for an evil army. You know, a lot of my opponents were starting with less might than me, which uh, when I'm also forcing them to you know, use it on marches and uh, counter-striking the Witch King and things like that, um, especially Vrasku's might in the late game, I was able to call a couple of critical moves quite regularly. Yeah, it's definitely got the potential to, to move on. Now, did you play in the, the doubles as well or just the singles? I did play in the doubles, um, and I ended up taking Rivendell to that, which meant painting 400 points in about eight hours because I just needed a good army. Uh, My uh, partner for the doubles, uh, Matt uh, from uh, Queensland, had uh, come across to the UK with only a dwarf army, so I needed needed a good army at short notice that could ally with that. Okay. Now, do you recall enough of your games to be able to talk through um, some of the details for them and how they went? Um, so not as distinctly with the doubles, partly because it was on the previous day and it also followed on the back of the um, Chaos in Arda four-player multiplayer Chaos game that we started off with as well. Um, a lot of fun with it, but the, the specifics of the game and uh, what my opponents actually had in their armies, uh, I, I can give a very brief rundown, but don't have a lot of detail for Oh, that sounds um, perfect. Just do some brief rundowns and, and then we'll move on to the, the main event. My army was Elrond with mostly a bunch of elves and Matt's army was 
about 15 Iron Guard with a couple of Dwarf Captains. So we had a, a kind of ridiculous but also pretty effective battle line of two attack Dwarfs with throwing axes backed up by Fight 5 Elves with spears, which like on raw stats was actually just an incredible fighting force when you got to fight fairly. And in our first game, yeah, I think it was the first game we were playing um, Heirlooms of Ages Past is the prize. I can't remember which, but it was one with a a prize that you had to uh, hold on to. And we played against a big Gothmog's Legendary Legion alliance. And that was one where our... You know, so effectively, th- or three or four with a banner attack, fight five frontline. We're really able to just grind through uh, mortar orcs very effectively. Uh, but the, they outnumbered us by so much that we ended up getting ground out anyway. And uh, the game came down to me having inflicted zero wounds throughout the entire course of the game, but having the prize on one elven spearman uh, hiding in the back corner, surrounded by six orcs and needing to roll a six to win the fight and hold on to the prize as the game ended, which, despite not managing to roll a six to wound for the entire game, finally rolled the six there and uh, sneakily won that one. Well, that, that sounds really good. So you definitely knew first game up that you had to hold on to the prize, which was good. Yes. Um, f- fortunately, I, I managed to play through a few of the scenarios. I know one thing I've I've always been quite conscious of, even if I sometimes forget in the heat of battle, is like wind conditions and making sure that you are, uh, you know, kind of keeping track of uh, what is required to win the game and doing doing what can be done to uh, to achieve that. Um, so whether that sometimes means you know sacrificing your general or a dragon or something like that, if it secures victory, it's worth doing game where I failed to inflict a single wound, um, as we'll get to in the last game as well. Uh, Luckily, Matt was uh, a bit better at actually killing things than I was. Uh, In the second game, we played against a big mess of Hunter Orcs with uh, a few of the Hunter Orc characters. I can't exactly remember which. There was definitely a Bolg, um, and we basically sat back and shot with Elves, and then when they got close, we threw axes at them with Iron Guard, and it was Lords of Battle, and so at that point we had about 7,000 uh, wound markers because the Hunter Orcs were getting cut to ribbons, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. So there was no way for uh, Bolgan friends to uh, to actually overcome that. Yeah, the Hunter Orcs hate that uh, the Iron Guard combination. Dwarf throwing weapons are really nasty because they're, they're surprisingly hard to reach, and, and when they when they get close, they, they tend to win enough fights that, that when they get another charge, they take out another few as well, and oh, it, it's, it's an uphill yeah. battle. Also, as well with the, you know, the the dwarves don't have a six inch charge range, like a, a six inch threat range with their charge, but they do with the throwing weapons. So you can sometimes, uh, you know, unlike with a normal dwarf infantry wall where people can sit five and a half inches away, uh, if you've got a lot of throwing weapons, you can still do something in those situations as well, and it sort of forces people into you potentially a bit sooner than they might have liked. It's it's a an army idea that I I kind of want to explore a bit more. I, I think that Iron Guard might be really underrated, but I need to play with it a lot more to find out. But yeah, two attacks and throwing weapons, and they're still like defense six. It's all it's all pretty good numbers. Okay, so game three. Yes, uh, in game three, we played against uh, Nigel and John, who had a Harad and Mordor alliance. I guess not technically Harad, it's uh, the Serpent Horde or whatever it's called now. Um, but they, they had, uh, importantly, I think it was Suladan giving them March, and the Tainted on a Fell Beast 
in Seize the Prize. So they mm. uh, they proceeded to win first turn, march a cavalry model onto the prize, uh, dig it up and shield it with a with several other cavalry, and then passed it onto the Tainted on a Fell Beast. So we thought this was going to be one of those uh, miserable Seize the Prize games where they just get it on turn one and fly it off the board and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, but fortunately, the game didn't quite go like that because uh, to get for them to get to the board, they had to uh, run around our army and avoid it. So this was the second game where I managed to do literally no wounds for the entire game, but still uh, still managed to uh, get involved. Uh, so as the Tainted's flying around the right flank, I was running across at full speed with my Elven Knights and Elrond trying to track it down somehow to stop it from getting off. And we ended up with an absurd sequence of uh, roll-offs to get heroic moves and roll-offs to fight heroic combats first, all of these just trying to get something into the Tainted to stop it from flying off the board. Uh, They ended up flying it into a single knight, uh, ready to heroic combat and scoot off the board, but ended up killing the knight with the Tainted's uh, seeping death <laughs> ability or whatever it's called. Uh, so yeah, instead of heroic combating off the board, it's just sat there uh, waiting for Elrond to charge it. Uh, so we have another one of those critical roll-offs for, uh, for who gets to move. Uh, unfortunately, the, the end of the story is that it flew off the board with the prize. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the, the way that it managed to do that was a lot more exciting and engaging than it, uh, it might have initially seemed. But unfortunately, that's been about my best experience with Seize the Prize. So it's one of those scenarios I'm, uh, I'm always happy to avoid. Yes, yeah. It's, uh, it, that sounds like a good Seize the Prize. Sometimes you get a good one, but usually it's game over pretty early on. So hopefully there's rumors of the, the new, uh, I think it's a general's book or something like that to, to create some new scenarios. Hopefully they relook at that scenario because the concept's not a bad idea, but the, the execution doesn't quite work as much as I think a lot of people want it to. So I find it's one of those things where some of the scenario win conditions are quite all or nothing, which is sort of necessary to make to force people to play the scenario. If you could win them all just by like killing the general and breaking your enemy, then you wouldn't actually need to you know, play scenarios all that differently. But the flip side of that is that then it can become all about that one thing. And if that one thing is uh, your general killing more infantry than their general or running something off the table it's uh yeah definitely not not always the most sort of balanced of games in a sense even if uh most armies can compete in those scenarios depending on how they're put together yeah it's funny because it's almost a, a turnaround from the last time they did the the points match scenarios it was a kill kill leader and break was in every single scenario so pretty much you designed mm-hmm. your army to do that and you could almost win all the games just by doing that so you ignore the to go grab something else. I think there's only only domination from that edition where it was was vital to actually go and get the objectives. So yeah. hopefully they get the balance right. I think it's it's been a good progress towards this way, but I think they went a little bit too far in a, in a couple of them. Yeah, there's probably. I, I mean, it's it's one of those things where you know people in a group tend to have um, unnecessarily negative opinions of things, and I think there's probably eight to ten of the scenarios that people audibly groan uh, when they get drawn at tournaments. But uh, despite that, I think most of them I'm pretty happy with. And, yeah, a a little bit of tweaking on the others might help. But I think the introduction of, uh, you know, potentially some new scenarios as well will really help to shake things up too, Uh, either reducing the chances of getting some of the outlier ones or, 
just giving a bit more of a spread of different things to try to do. I, I really like uh, those capture and control, fog of war kind of ones where armies are forced to spread out and fight in ways they might not otherwise want to. Yeah, I agree that those are good ones. Yeah, Kylie mentioned to me about the the groaning um, when scenarios were released as well, which is a bit, <laughs> bit different from the Australian scene. So that that took me by surprise because, yeah, to be able to, to voice your opinion like that is seems a bit uh, a bit strange from where we're coming from. We we tend to voice our opinion afterwards, and we have a chat to the organizer <laughs> afterwards, but we don't tend to groan when they get drawn or anything like that. I mean, I think it's uh, to a reasonable extent kind of ironic where it's you know a sort of a bit of a joke to groan when uh, reconnoiter is is the announced scenario. Uh, you know, p- people seem to be, by and large, uh, actually pretty happy to just get on with things, but uh, uh, tradition, having, yeah. having a bit, bit, a bit of a joke around at the start anyway. Oh, good. Yeah, it's hard to get those in-jokes sometimes if you're not part of the scene and, and you hear the responses to them. So, oh, that's good that they're taking it lightheartedly. And clearly the organisers are still putting it in the pack, so there's not, it's not going to be that big an issue, I would imagine. Oh no! It it seems like it's it's more just a bit of a yeah a bit bit of a, a general joshing as uh, as some people might say. Although that probably puts my uh, age at about seventy five using uh, phrases like that. But yeah, pe- people just having a bit of a laugh before the uh, before the round starts, not actually being too upset to have to play those. Although my contest of champions story later on might uh, might suggest something different. <laughs> now there was four games for the. Doubles, or was there only three? So, so the tournament structure, I mean, it was kind of three different tournaments. There was a one game of Chaos in Arda, which is a, a the, the best analogue that I've found for it was Triumph and Treachery, for those who played it in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Basically, the idea was a multiplayer game with lots of different things happening over the course of the game. Uh, it's not a competitive uh way to play but a really good social one uh you're deploying in a kind of pseudo maelstrom of battle setup so your armies are all mixed around with each other from the start of the game and then there are lots of wacky conditions that get thrown in like being able to throw shields like lurts and use them all as throwing weapons or getting victory points for uh models surviving jump tests and uh, and those kind of things so you're accumulating points as you go along uh sometimes your opponents know that you've achieve those points other times they might be secret so you're just trying to do lots of things to score points and you don't always know uh, what you're going to need to do even as the turn starts so i think chaos is definitely a good way to describe it Uh, so that was the first round and then there were three doubles games in a doubles mini tournament and that was the first day uh, for most of the players that happened uh, or while that was happening uh, the lucky few were playing in the uh, strategy battle game world invitational system championship deathmatch or whatever it was uh, that Kylie mm-hmm. was involved in on da- on the first day. Yes, and if you want to hear about that one, you can go back to our Articon Part One episode where we, we follow Kylie's exploits on that that ultra competitive uh, tournament as well. And of course, you can just uh, message Andreas from Spilfeninging the Fellowship because he'll definitely tell you where to find it on YouTube. You don't have to search yourself for that; just get him to do it for you. I think they recorded two or three of Kylie's games and uh, definitely had four rounds of that on camera with at least some amount of uh, lovely Norwegian commentary. Yeah, no, it turned out really well. I think English it was three commentary. games. Yeah, and, and yeah. Kylie was really nervous to have a have a um, games on the camera, but I think they went pretty well overall. <laughs> no spoilers. No, no, no. We don't, we don't want to spoil something from, from seven months ago or whatever it was. No, definitely not. <laughs> 
Okay, so partying and all that sort of stuff, night festivities, was there anything on that night uh, after the, the first day of gaming, or did you just retire to the bed and get some sleep? I can't quite remember which night was which in that we're recording this a fair way after the event mm-hmm. itself. I think on the first night, there was a lot of general chat, meeting people, and a few beers in the hotel bar. And if my memory serves correctly, I had a very early night on the second night. Uh, playing four games of a somewhat unfamiliar system in one day was uh, quite brutal. Uh, I, I just found it really draining. And knowing that I had to back it up with uh, another four games the next day, because it was a the, the main tournament was split into four games, two games. Mm. That meant that, yeah, I, I just a uh, bit of self-preservation and had an early night on the second night. Oh, that's uh, I'm not quite sure what others got up to, though. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, just a, an off question. Do you find it uh, more mentally taxing to be playing uh, the Middle-Earth strategy battle game more than uh, your old Warhammer days? Uh, at the moment, I maybe a bit less so now. Uh, certainly at this point, I did, and part of that was lack of familiarity. So uh, I, I don't know if this ever goes away in strategy battle game. I, I found it certainly gets easier. Uh, but just the number of things that you can kind of do on autopilot or without having to like, really f- uh, think through in detail. So uh, things like uh, moving your army but leaving channels for characters to get through if they have to call a heroic move or... Uh, making sure that you've plugged the gaps so that uh, a cavalry model's heroic combat can't get round the back into your uh, like into your uh, wizards. Those kind of things, I obviously you still make mistakes with, but I I found early on I had to really think through everything kind of step by step. So I had to just uh, work out exactly what each individual enemy model was going to be able to do, and spend so much time focused on that and like double checking rules and stats that I didn't know off the cuff uh, that I was just having to do so much more uh, like mm, uh, what's the word like small scale uh, mechanical thinking, like really focusing on the uh, on the trees and not so much on the forest, so to speak. Uh, so I I found the me- more mentally taxing thing was the minor. Almost the minor stuff, the small things, uh, but having to think about all of those really explicitly every turn, whereas now I can some of those steps a bit more uh, and focus a bit more on the kind of overall battle thing, and that takes a bit of that uh, that mental load off, I find. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There is a lot of decisions to be made, and because you, every character can do anything at once on its own, it, I feel like um, a lot of games I've played before, you think in four or five blocks of models or units of models ah. or, or whatever, and th- there's a very limited amount of choices to make for them, whereas a lot of times there isn't. A lot of times it's just push them all forward and, and get into combat, but there's times when you really need to make that choice, and, and it, it can be quite taxing, and you get sometimes you, you play against someone who they, they take a long time to play through just because they're spending all this time making decisions and they're not trying to slow the game down, but they, it, it just takes a long time because there's so, so much interactions to be happening. I've, I've been very conscious of that as well. And uh, so, so the, the, a lot of the time I will just decide that I don't have the time to make a, a good decision. And so I will just make any decision um, to make sure that I'm not sort of taking too long to execute a turn. That is one thing I've noticed because there's not a set turn limit on games that, uh, yeah, that making sure that you 
you know, do do things fairly quickly and that you're conscious of how much time is left in the round and how close armies are to breaking and things like that becomes really important. And so kind of bearing that in mind and trying to work out how many more turns can you get in uh, is something that I'm increasing, becoming increasingly good at recognizing in advance rather than realizing you know, partway through a turn, oh, well, the, the game ends in two minutes. Yeah, I, I definitely find that that's the case as well. You want to you want to make sure that, that you do a lot of things on autopilot to get down to the the nitty gritty stuff because I think even even at, at very like a lot of years of experience playing and, and at a high level, you still have to make all those choices. You still have to go through and, and decide what's every model capable of and all this sort of stuff. And there's there's a lot of processes that you, that you and a lot of decisions you make. So. I think I still think some of that's there, but you get a bit better at it. You get a bit quicker at it, and you can sort of look and see see pockets of the board and, and what's important, and what's not. Sometimes you look at it and just say that flank, I can just move things really quickly because nothing's going to threaten it at the moment, and just throw them forward really quickly. Whereas you know that center where there's a hero around, you need to be a bit more careful about it because there's a heroic combat lurking or, or something else. Yeah, and and also just having uh, having the reps in to some extent of being able to already know the right way to do things. So like the the first time you're sitting there trying to, I, I mean, for you it might have been a, a while ago and not as freshly imprinted in your memory. But the the first time you're sitting there trying to uh, work out what can one of their heroes do between a move and a heroic combat like how far can they get what kind of gaps can they get through and what can they get around um you know for me that requires a good amount of remembering which control zones of mine are going to stay up and which ones are going to get uh, get tagged out and uh you know those kind of things and like what sort of angles they'll be able to move at um i don't see that Directly, I have to kind of step through it from my opponent's perspective, and, uh, and and going through all of that takes a bit more time than it probably does once you start to become more used to that, and you can kind of see those possibilities straight away and not have to kind of step through playing their turn out step by step to then work out what you need to do in your turn step by step. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of the, uh, the kind of uh, time can be saved, so to speak. Although the other way to save the time is to not worry too much about it and just see what happens, which is definitely my my usual approach. I think that's actually a really good approach. If you if you just try something, uh, especially if you're not in a position where you you're gonna like take a podium or something like that, you can usually decide by the first few games whether or not you've got a chance. And at that point, it's oftentimes good to just go through and go with a gut instinct and say, I'm going to do this. And then if it doesn't work, just quickly reflect, why didn't it work? Or could you have made a difference or something like that afterwards? Because you, you can spend so much time on a small decision that, that you only get to a part way through the game, or it means that you um you have to rush decisions later on, which might have actually been more important. I think it probably helps me personally having played, I played quite a bit of Magic the Gathering, which is all played on extremely uh, clearly enforced time limits. Uh, when you're playing online, you have a, a chess clock system, but when you're playing in person, you have a a slightly fuzzy, but, but a limited amount of time to make each decision. And so that, that kind of credo of... Like, at some point, you just have to make any decision, which is better than no decision at all, uh, has really been enforced for me. So I'm okay accepting that my moves might not be optimal, but you still have to make them. Uh, so in uh, a recent tournament, I I was trying to move up a flank and keep things out of uh, keep things out of charge range as I was moving a couple of orcs towards an objective, and I measured how far away uh, the nearest 
dwarf was. They were more than five inches away. So all good. And I move on because I'm, I, I'm just trying to go quickly. And I just forgot that there was a Thorin sitting there slightly behind on a goat. And so even though I was out of charge range of the closest thing, I wasn't safe. Uh, you know, those, those kind of mistakes happen. And that's just a byproduct of, you know, you can't play perfectly in two hours. Uh, so you need to play as well as you can within that time frame. Yeah, d- definitely. Yes, yes. You have to you have to do everything you can to to put yourself in a good position. But you just have to accept it when when so- something's not the ideal thing. You go and you you make do with whatever you get next. And I, I have a process where I look at it and I just whatever's happened in the past, I can't change. So it's always very much okay. What can I do now to help? What can I do now to help? What can I do now to help? And that usually puts me in good stead because sometimes you have a turn where you just go, "Oop, I didn't quite mean to do that." Okay. Reset. Let's let's just go to the next turn and and see if I can get myself out of it. I, I think that approach is a really useful one, and it probably also is something that's helpful with experience. Um, I've, I find that one thing I potentially tend towards is if I've got something kind of important in my army, whether that's a, a shaman with fury or you know a, a ring wraith on a fell beast or something like that. I because I haven't got the experience of playing games playing enough games where those pieces get taken out or with uh different kinds of armies i am prone to thinking oh like my my fell beast is you know even just something like my fell beast is being killed even if i've still got the ring wraith uh i still sometimes think well that's that you know that's a huge disadvantage that's that's really bad for me and not really having a plan b or not knowing how to how to switch gears and play a bit differently as the game changes around me and that's something that uh yeah, what what to do in games where the plan hasn't been executed perfectly, uh, or where your opponent has surprised you with something, uh, is definitely something I need to need to work on and start getting plan B and plan C and being able to uh, move between those without needing to, uh, yeah, kind of entirely go back to the drawing board, so to speak. Um, and yeah, as you say, working out what you can do to help the situation that you're in, rather than what rather than in the moment focusing on what you needed to do to avoid getting in the situation in the first place. Yeah, yeah you can focus on that later on. It's, it's all about the, the, the next choice, the next choice, the next choice, because, yeah, we, we play, you don't really go back on the choices. And um, mentally, if you just go back on too many choices, you, you, you sometimes miss new opportunities because sometimes things don't go to plan, but then something else happens that, that you just see, you go, oh, wait a second, maybe if I try this, and, and you try something else, and, and sometimes it works. Uh, I, I think... Uh, yeah, definitely work, working out ways to kind of win from behind and to to uh, give yourself good chances at winning games, even when things haven't gone well, is something really useful. Um, the, the most recent example was from the same game where I got my orcs accidentally thorned. Um, I was in a really bad position where um, it, we were playing five objective scenarios. I'd given up the center, which was probably a mistake. And my my army was getting kind of crushed in the the sort of shield wall fight. So what I ended up doing was just any models as I could uh, to run hell for leather for every objective I could get my hands on, uh, knowing that I would not, you know, I was definitely going to lose the long game and my army was going to get crushed, but I was at least able to kind of sprint to enough objectives that the first, you know, the first turn we rolled to see if the game ended, I think I still had enough objectives to just be up point uh, if the game had ended on the first turn. Um, and it was kind of recognizing that my army was, I wasn't going to win a proper fight, but there were still ways that I could at least give myself a chance to win the game, which if I was tunnel visioned on just 
you know, throwing more and more models into a losing fight, then I wouldn't have even had the chance to get to do that. Yeah, that's a very good point. And there are a lot of scenarios where even if you are well and truly behind in the main fight, you can still get an objective or, or get the main objective. So you've got to keep playing for that. So that's some good tactical discussion. It sounds like you're, uh, you've got some knowledge going into the, the game. Let's see how you went in the singles games. <laughs> yes, yeah, so unfortunately, some of this knowledge is uh, acquired with the benefit of hindsight and from uh, a couple more months of a few more tournaments. So, uh, yeah, uh, so, some of the decisions I might have made at Articon itself uh, hopefully would be ones I would have uh, come up with better plans for now. Um, so j- just going through game by game? Yeah, that's that's usually what we do. Uh, so apologies in advance to uh, my opponents. I do not have all of the names in front of me and... Uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll just uh, refer to armies rather than specific uh, specific people. Unfortunately, uh, given that all my opponents were extremely lovely, and uh, one of the cool things about Articon was that they were from all over the place. I think I played against uh, just in the singles uh, two Danes, two Spaniards, uh, a German, and an Englishman. So like, a real mix of people who I don't I don't think you'd get that kind of diverse field at. Uh, any other tournament apart from maybe the ETC where you have such a huge international contingent. Yeah, that's very exciting. Okay, so game one? So in game one, uh, I was playing against um, Elrond King Elisar uh, with a hefty Gondor contingent and uh, allied in with uh, Army of the Dead. So the, the main idea of this army was that there was about 15... Uh, Warriors of the Dead, supported by Fountain Court Guard with Shield. <laughs> yep. Army was either Courage 6 or Bodyguard. They were Defense 7 or 8. There were overlapping banner effects with uh, uh, Aragorn and just ordinary banners. Uh, there was, I think, a Huron running around as well. So an, an incredibly strong battle line that could move quite quickly when it wasn't charging, uh, but didn't have a lot of speed on the kind of turn of engagement when they couldn't be, when they couldn't call marches with, uh, with the King, uh, or sorry, or with Aragorn. And uh, we were playing, uh, the, the Maelstrom mission with the prize in the middle heirlooms. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those ones where kind of knew what the score was. We were shielding, trying to shield one objective. Uh, Maelstrom worked out. Okay. So we basically had one corner each, uh, we shielded one objective and started flipping over others, and I fortunately rolled a six to flip an objective uh, towards my side of the center and was then able to just run away with it. Um, when our battle lines kind of engaged, I was, you know, I, I started out trying to win the fight, uh, but unfortunately, or I guess unsurprisingly, my uh, my Urukai were getting cut to ribbons by the the Blades of the Dead and the fight for uh, support from the the Fountain Court guards was really critical there um so i was basically running away with the prize and my banner and my general just trying to uh, preserve as many points as possible and just uh quickly as i could in the middle after the first couple of turns of trying to win it, the fight it became clear that wasn't going to happen and so it was time to start stabbing and charging my models into fights they were going to lose and uh, and so on just trying to uh, get broken as quickly as possible <laughs> oh, that's good. So the first first game you played for that one was the, the trying to, <laughs> to manipulate the end conditions, and sometimes it feels a bit strange doing that, but it's definitely what you have to do at times, so it's good you got your head around that one. 
it's something that um, I, I think one of my practice games, I, I had the same sort of experience against a, a Corsair army, which had, I think, almost every model with a buckler or a, a shield of some kind. And so I was like fra- fractionally uh, head on points and was uh, in uh, in recon was just desperately trying to get the game over. And my opponent just shielded with every model for about five turns. It was the most frustrating game because <laughs> I was fighting, you know, I, I was, I was fighting and just trying to get my models, uh, get my models killed because I just needed the game to end. I was so far ahead. And then turn after turn, it was shield here shield here. And the only way I killed a model for the last like four turns was by stabbing myself because all his entire army was just shielding. Um, a slightly strange way for games to, for, for end conditions to play out. But uh, yeah, a real, as you say, a really important one to get your head around because uh, yeah, every extra turn that you can buy or deny becomes really critical. It always does feel feel strange a little bit. It's very much a tournament type play because when when you're playing the the narrative scenarios, you pretty much don't bother doing that. It's just right, go go all out and and play it as thematic as possible you can because you you're trying to get that experience. But I, I don't know any other way to do it in that tournament because if you you're clearly behind in, and you're losing lots of models, but you've got the big points in an objective or something like that, you're just going to try and get the game to end. It's, it's a pretty pretty straightforward tactic. I, I personally don't mind abstracting uh, from pseudo-realistic scenarios in that way. Um, if those are the rules of the game, then you know at least when you're playing semi-competitively uh, or playing it as a game rather than as a, a storytelling or narrative uh, vehicle, you just you accept that those are the rules and just lean into them. If you need to get your army killed to win the game. That's what you try to do, and you find inventive ways to do it where possible. If there are, uh, you know, if there's some deep water around, for example, uh, a good place to take a nap. Yes, yeah, and look, I think as an evil play, you can definitely justify a lot more of them because you tend to be a bit more ruthless. So shooting into combats to try and kill your own guys and doing all this sort of stuff seems seems appropriate because I feel like that's that's what an evil uh, overlord would do. Yes, I'm finding uh, switching now to good armies and not being allowed to shoot into combat, I find really limiting, actually, uh, which, dem- I mean, it helped that I, I've been playing with a lot of crossbows, but, uh, yeah, it just shows how uh, how much of a, an important difference that can be where you, you have a tactical option with evil armies that good armies just don't have. Yes, yes, it, it's, it's, it's a shame, isn't it? Because the good armies mostly have the better <laughs> shooting, so they, there's, there's times when you really want to just uh, maybe accidentally drop an arrow in the back of someone who's about to... Uh, power up a heroic combat or something? Yes, my, my favourite is where a hero charges into a couple of models and thinks that they're going to be safe, and then you just run all of the rest of your army more than six inches away from the fight and then lob a catapult onto it. Doesn't matter which one you hit, as long as they're all uh, they're all engaged. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and no scatter as well, because you, you just scatter onto one of those models close by. That's a great one. That's <laughs> a really good exactly. one. Exactly. Um, okay. So, game two. Mm-hmm playing against, I think it was Matthias, uh, who had a Mordor Serpent Guard um, alliance. And uh, we were playing, cl- no, not Clash, uh, Lords of Battle, I want to say. Essentially, we lined up and I had 10 crossbows and he had to run at me. Uh, there was quite a lot of terrain on the board, so I was able to basically have a, a very solid shield wall between two large buildings with 10 crossbows forcing him to run into it. And, uh, yeah, basically the game played out exactly as as it 
uh, as, as I'd drawn up the army list when I was envisaging how it would fight, uh, uh, Matthias had to overextend to try and shut down my shooting, and in doing so, that gave my Witch King on Felbeast some uh, some sneaky opportunities to uh, yeah to start like charging and doing some work. But you know, I, I was in a you know, sufficiently uh, advantage position based on the the scenario and the army composition that I was able to do things like you know, avoiding the troll. You know, he, he has a mortal troll that I'm able to avoid for quite a while because, um, a, again, I'm sort of in control of the pacing of the game, uh, the tempo, if you will. Uh, you know, he, he has to limit the number of turns before we engage, and I'm quite comfortable him uh, as many turns of kind of hand-to-hand combat as possible. And then uh, me having something super mobile like the Fell Beast uh, is you know, really useful in those scenarios, especially when... Uh, when terrain is getting in the way, being able to just fly over it and ignore it is again just a kind of uh, a matchup advantage that uh, I was fortunate enough to have, and ended up managing to win that one as well. But you know, on the back of that, being able to just pour crossbow fire into him as he has to walk across like the full twenty-four inches of range. Well, look, you've set up your army so it can do that. You, you've got a really strong wall that that is designed to draw them into you, and then you've got a, a fell beast that can flip around and go wherever it likes. So. So that that sounds like the ideal setup for you. That's that's pretty much uh, exactly what you've designed the list to do. Pretty much. There are certainly some things that I would change, changing it in hindsight. I actually really liked the the combination of uh, Morin on orcs and Urukai pikemen. So you're able to get the uh, you actually get some fight for running around behind your much cheaper Morin on orcs. Uh, something else I would do in hindsight is give pikes to my crossbowmen. Um, I just, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but having more models that you can just sort of pile into tag into the backs of, uh, combats, even if they're minus one to win the fight, if they couldn't get into the fight anyway, it's still, uh, a net positive and they're still rolling to wound just as well as normal. And so those kind of scenarios where you are just standing there in a shield wall shooting pikes on crossbowmen would be, uh, something I'd look at in the future. Um, uh, much less useful in, uh, in other scenarios though, where you have to move around. Yeah, I tend to. I've always been one that that use the crossbowmen as the front rank and the pikemen as the back ranks, and I tend to keep them separate. But I do understand the appeal of having the pikes on the crossbows as well because it's it's not a lot of investment, and it, yeah, basically, yes, you do get some negatives to your ability to fight. But yeah, as you say, if you if you're not going to use them for any other way, if they're going to be in the back anyway, then you might as well. I, I definitely use them as a fighting force, but being defense five rather than six, I prefer not to have them as the actual front rank. Although it depends on what you're fighting. Like against mm. strength three, it doesn't doesn't make a difference. But uh, yeah, in those kind of evil matchups where both sides have uh, a Morin on orc wall, ha- having fight four for my supports was uh, you know it's a really big deal. Yeah, definitely. So two wins out of two games. This is a very good start. Like so, so at this point, it's my my first big tournament. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I I recognise that I am not the you know by no stretch the best player in the room, but I think I've done some uh, some good preparation. I've I've been really uh, I've been really conscious of the need to practice, so I made sure I, I you know I've got several games in and that I've uh, you know have tried to play different scenarios and. You know, have a pretty good understanding of what my you know, what opposing armies are likely to be able to do. Uh, so then we get to round three, which is where I guess the uh, the shenanigans start, and I get uh, contest of champions against uh, a particularly unique seven hundred and fifty point army, which was a goblin mercenary captain and Smaug. <laughs> oh no! 
yes, the old Smaugen contest of champions. Uh, and th- this is one where I, my lack of rules knowledge was a problem. I, I didn't realize at the time that you could win the game by wiping out the enemy army. So I, I probably going to lose on the, uh, the general tally to Smaug. I didn't realize that I had the sort of backdoor win condition of just killing him across as many turns as we, as we had to play. Yes. Uh, that's not to say I would have necessarily been able to do that anyway, but I didn't even know at the time that I could have tried to do that, which became really important because I, I think the first five turns of the game, Smaug did not kill a single model. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> that's... Uh, so so this, this was a combination of uh, transfixing and then uh, with the Witch King and then striking up with either the Witch King alerts. Uh, the problem is that I'm taking loads of courage tests when I'm doing this. So uh, you need to... like. First, you need to win the move off if you don't have priority, and then you need to get the transfix off, and then you need to strike up high enough to win the fight to actually start. I didn't have the Morgul Blade on the Witch King, and if I did have, the game could have been over on turn one. Uh, but uh, instead, what I ended up doing was yeah, a combination of those transfix strike plays and trying to chip away wounds, and also just shooting with 10 crossbows at him. Uh, the Smaug rule, where you take... Uh, a number of wounds equal to the strength of the weapon that's shooting at him on a on a six uh, really comes into play with the strength four crossbows. I managed to do twelve wounds to Smaug with crossbows on the the turns where I wasn't transfixing him. I would just charge in with one model and then shoot ten crossbows into the fight. Ooh, and yeah. uh, I think I did that three times. Took twelve wounds off him. It's starting to look pretty good. Uh, but at that point, I start to run out and uh, lose a move off or two. Uh, I run out of uh, will on the Witch King to keep trying to bully through the resistant to magic. And uh, Smaug ends up, uh, yeah, kind of getting fairly high up on the tally. Uh, and what I could have done was try to just kill him. Instead, what I tried to do was get one of the oaths, which was an Articon thing. There were some secret objectives to try to get to capture two terrain pieces with at least five models. Uh, so unfortunately the game wouldn't end until I was at 25%, at which point I would have nine models left, which meant that I couldn't achieve that oath anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, which, uh, is uh, yeah, another mistake I made with the benefit of hindsight, which is be able to do basic arithmetic. Mm. Um, but that's, I, I feel that at this point in my life, that, uh, that ship has sailed. Well, yeah, we can, we can work on that. I think there's still possibilities there, <laughs> but the, um, yeah, that 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 is a, a new win condition that's only came in in the latest edition, I believe, because it wasn't there for a while. So it is the the get out of jail free card in those type of scenarios where someone's designed the, the contest of champion with three models or two models or or one model, yeah. and you've just got to yeah go all in, and you, you probably had the tools to do it. I don't think it's a guarantee by any means, but the um the Urukai are not that bad at killing Smell because you've got high strength across the board. Uh, you've got the Witch King to, to help with the magic and, and get things off and on. Uh, I take it you didn't channel the the transfix very often? Uh, so I didn't use tr- uh, the channel transfix very much. I, I This might be a mistake I often make, but I was trying to conserve my might for things like uh, winning move-offs or uh, striking up. Because, uh, yeah, I, I was just uh, potentially to run into... Smaug just resisting the spell that I'd already channeled um, and then losing the will and the might at the same time um, and doing it the other way around. 
might have actually been a mistake where I'm instead trying to get the transfix off and then charge in and strike up, um, which obviously the strike doesn't have viable success. So that's maybe something I needed to uh, just sort of take the risk more and uh, and have a crack at the the channel, but uh, not something I did at the time and uh, maybe something to try next time that I have to deal with the dragon. I think uh, what you did was probably the more conservative way of doing it and probably okay, but sometimes you have to take a bit of a risk when you're going against something that big and nasty and you've only got a certain amount of time to do it. So it, it is a challenge and probably you probably made the right choice overall just on the, the numbers. I think as well it's it's maybe a, a combination of uh, recognizing the alternative win condition of just killing Smaug over the course of a long game. Um, so I, I wasn't playing to do that. And I was also conserving might, which is more something to do if I was playing for a long game. So I was kind of uh, going in two different directions, uh, both playing conservatively in one sense and also not playing for a kind of long conservative game in another sense. And so that leads to some inefficient application of resources. Very true. Very true. It does. Did you manage to get the Goblin Mercenary? Yes, I did, um, which was uh, satisfying, but not not until after he'd already uh, popped up and called a heroic move to get Smaug uh, out of the kind of area I'd boxed him into. That's good as well, because that would be the worst one if, if you managed to go all that time to kill Smaug and then timed out before you managed to catch the mercenary. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, he, he he did also manage to uh, kill a couple of uh, Urukai himself, so yeah, pretty good showing from the from the captain, even if he's not the star of the army. No, he's definitely not. He's not a bad choice because you can hide him reasonably well, but it's it's really hard to decide what to take with Smaug because I'm guessing the Smaug player probably won probably around half their games, but there's some of them that you just don't feel like you have a chance at all with Smaug, and there's others that, that you just, like like the game you had, there's not much you can do against him. He just sort of powers on and gets the win by himself. Well, it, whilst whilst he certainly you know was able to do that in hindsight, I, I I think my army just about had the tools to make a game of it. Uh, like certainly when we set up, I thought that there was uh, no chance that I would be able to be competitive. But actually, and this is partly having not already played th- that kind of a game before, uh, it actually turned out that there were a reasonable number of things I could do to at least uh, put some damage on Smaug or give me a chance to. Uh, to get him into the sort of danger zone. I think he ended up with six or seven wounds left, which is still quite a lot. But if I've still got most of my army, it's, it's definitely not safe. Um, it, it didn't feel as bad as I thought it would. Uh, Tim, my opponent was ha- having a, a real laugh with it as well, especially over those first sort of five turns where Smaug was not moving and not fighting and just getting a bit grumpy as all of his, uh, his potential prey was getting shot by crossbows instead. Yeah. Would you take the Morgul Blade next time? Yes. I, well, I want to say yes, but every time I write a list, I always leave it out, even now. So uh, in theory, yes. In practice, I always get greedy and prefer to have just another Orc. Yeah, I feel like um, I would almost consider dropping a Will down or a, even a Fate down or something else. I know that that's a big risk, but just that, just for that one matchup, it's almost, it changes the game entirely because you only have to get that one combat where you go all in and you've got the might to back it up. So... It's it's a tough choice because it's it's a kind of war gear that that you only use one in six games, but that could be the difference. So one thing that I really try to do when I'm building army lists is to make sure I have the tools to deal with all of the different things that that could come up. Uh, so yeah, in a tournament like this, 
I, I think, yeah, it really just is worth taking the Morgul Blade, especially if you're on a Fell Beast and you're like the army's main source of damage in combat. Uh, you really want to make sure that in as many games as possible, that is the biggest and baddest thing on the battlefield. And when you don't have the Morgul Blade, only have your normal vulnerabilities of just getting like beaten by Dane or someone like that. But you also have the additional problem of there being just some big things that deal with and can't uh, can't really delay. Um, I, I think dropping dropping stats off the Witch King is probably not the the way to go because if anything, I would have wanted to have added a bit more uh, because he was such a focal point for the army. Burakai wouldn't have really changed any games, and having the Morgul Blade would have massively changed at least that one. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's definitely what I should have done with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, well, it definitely is the, the benefit of hindsight. And, and if you didn't take Smaug, you might have had come to a different conclusion as well. Or didn't fight Smaug, you might have come up with a different conclusion. So it's a tricky one. I just find that, that it, it's something almost as good for a scare tactic as well because it means that heroes tend to avoid your Witch King a lot more, which keeps the Witch King going a lot more because they're the ones who can kill him. But just the, the threat of a Morgul Blade is often enough to, to make them hide from him. I, I think that's certainly certainly true. And at the end of the day, when you're playing 700, 800 points, you know, 10 points here or there, there's uh, there's very little that you can spend it on that, that has as much potential for changing the game as that does. And ag- again, writing the army list as I, as I did without a huge number of games, I just didn't even think about something like Smaug uh, uh, or even really other big things like a Mumak, I was just assuming that, yeah, every army is just going to have a few heroes and 20 or 30 infantry and there'll be some some cavalry running around. But those really uh, those really unique or different armies, I just, at that point in time. I actually still do the same thing when I'm, when I'm thinking of lists because I feel, I usually feel like in, in events that people want to go for something that's a bit more balanced and it's got a chance at everything. And I forget that there's people on the scene that, that are more than happy to go for those combinations that that pretty much have great weaknesses, but also huge strengths and, and can throw throw games off quite a bit. So, yeah, just, just to, to be aware of that is something to, to focus on when you're preparing for a tournament and maybe just trying a game, practice game or two against one of those three model armies or two model armies. Yeah, and, and also playing with them as well. Um, I, I don't really have the urge to play with uh, with Smaug, but Sauron is definitely something I, I'd be really keen to, uh, to have a bit of a play around with at some point. Another one of those... Like, kind of one model armies, but at least he's got some friends to sit on objectives as well. Yes, uh, Sauron's good fun. I enjoy playing with Sauron. Smaug, I, I'm the same. I don't have the... Like, I want to play him in scenarios, but I don't really want to play him in, a, in an event because he doesn't have a lot of choices. And there's times when he basically just sits there and the other army just attacks him until they, they die. And that's... I, I, as a player, I wouldn't find that satisfying, but I can see why people like it as well. It does look look cool and it's it's a nice model. And if you forked out the money for the model, you want to see it on the table. I think Tim ended up doing quite well in the tournament overall. I think he won four or five games with Smaug, which is, uh, yeah, certainly doing quite well, given that most of the scenarios were uh, objective-based rather than uh, rather than kill count-based. Um, so he's obviously played it quite well too. This is just the one scenario where it kind of... It, it, it seems the most egregious that, uh, that they've got this one-model army, but having the backdoor of, if you kill the dragon, you win the game, no matter what's actually happened beforehand does mean that yeah that there's a bit more uh, a bit more play to it than I'd perhaps realized to begin with. Yeah, and I guess that's the case in every single scenario as well. So no matter what you're doing, if you don't have an army that can go and take objectives or do a reconnoiter or whatever, you can always just go kill the dragon. So that's that's something that, that Tim would have had to consider as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. So crashing down to uh, to two one, a record that I was more than happy with. Uh, and then I uh, played against uh, Will Champion in the fourth round, uh, who I believe has recently uh, been crowned the winner of the Great British Hobby League for the year. So uh, definitely the, the kind of caliber of opponent you're hoping to get on the back of a, a resounding defeat. <laughs> I do like that you like a challenge. That's good. I, I'm So... I, I, one thing that I've been really conscious of, um, like coming into playing SBG tournaments, I, I've been really conscious of the fact that unlike when I was an experienced Warhammer player, I'm not going to be competing for podiums and top tens and things particularly easily. Um, but how do I get there? That's by playing people who are better at the game than me. And uh, seeing what they do, losing games to them, reflecting on what happened, and ideally uh, talking to them afterwards. And uh, th- there have been some uh, incredibly gracious opponents who have been happy to sit down and chat with me after uh, after games. And even before we'd kind of chatted and met at a few events and you know, to develop friendships, uh, people who were just willing to you know, talk to this person from Australia who showed up out of the blue and try to help them get better at the game. I, I-, I think yeah, just th- that kind of attitude and approach has been really good. And even you know, like some of the best players in the game are pretty happy to sit down and try to help you improve yourself if that's what you're trying to uh, trying to achieve. Yeah, I find that the community is really good about that. I don't think I don't think anyone wants someone to be so far ahead of everyone else that that it's no fun anymore. You, as uh, the good players, I think in general like people to be at their level if possible, so they they are very happy to talk to about it, which I think is really good. Yeah, um, and, and then like getting. You know, uh, partly that you know the scene's got a lot of people in it, but not so many people that you don't uh, end up sort of playing against some of the same people. So uh, I, I played against Will here, and you know the, the game you know to slightly jump ahead did not go very well. Uh, I then played him again at a tournament uh, towards the end of the year where I still lost, but I felt like I had a bit more control than the previous time, and hopefully you know, the next time I play him. I will either be getting closer or at some point we'll, we'll end up beating him. And it's, it's that sort of thing where because I'm coming in fresh, I, you know, my improvement is still, you know, it's that kind of point on the bell, not the bell curve, where it's still like I'm still learning very quickly because there's so much to learn. And so I, I can still sort of notice improvements as they're happening. Uh, whereas you know, I, I, once you get more experienced, improvement is going to become more gradual because you've already learned all of the simple lessons. Um or hopefully learn the simple lessons. So, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed being able to not only play against players who are much better than me, but also to play against them multiple times and to uh, you know, to be able to kind of use that as a way to measure progress and improvement, not necessarily in terms of winning the next time, but giving them a harder game and making them work harder for the win. Uh, and if that process keeps going, uh, at some point defeating them all and becoming... Lord of Middle Earth, or uh, or whatever it is, Lord of the Rings, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the dream, isn't it? Uh, I think you will, because you, you've you've got good experience of wargaming, and you, what you're saying all makes a lot of sense. So I think eventually you will get those wins. It's the kind of game that that you come up with a plan. It does reward you for it a lot of times. It's not like um, you're going to be down on a bad army list the whole time or anything like that. You're just going to eventually get there and do something to take them by surprise and or find a way, and you'll know their game style, and they'll 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 have trouble adapting to yours because you'll keep improving and eventually come up with something that they're, they're not aware of. I think that's, that's basically the, the way I've tried to approach it is to, you know, to 
look at improving things and not expecting to uh, to kind of know everything at once and to go very quickly. Having played other games quite a lot has been really helpful. Some of those things like uh, reflective practice, like uh, thinking about games and working through, kind of uh, thinking back over games after I've played them and trying to identify uh, particular uh, points of learning, uh, either something I did wrong or things I'd overlooked. Really making sure that I'm using games as a learning opportunity is something that I, I probably developed playing other game systems like uh, like Warhammer Fantasy and Magic the Gathering. And thinking about rings in that way has made it a bit easier for me to p- potentially uh, learn faster than I might have if I didn't already have some of that that prior experience. But the actual mechanics of the game itself... Yeah, are still something that I'm uh, I'm kind of learning more each time I play. That's really good. It's it's a fun time to to go through that, isn't it? When you you learn something and you can just see it, and then then you get to use it again on someone else, and and that sort of stage of development can be really entertaining. And sometimes you miss that once you've been playing the game long enough. Those things are, are few and far between when you really get something new or you try something different and 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 discover something. So it's it's a good time to be playing and and hopefully you get some results with it. Well, I, I mean, so since the uh, you know since Articon, where I I, I definitely uh, was sort of overperforming at this point, you know, winning my first couple of games is you know uh, was quite fortunate, both in terms of uh, you know what happened on the table and matchups and things like that. But it's that's basically the way I've tried to look at it is you know, win as many games as you can, come up against the better players because you know the tournaments are seeded, so. You know, uh, you're, you're going to play against stronger lists and better players over the course of the tournament. They'll teach you a couple of harsh lessons. Uh, you'll get knocked back down a bit, but then you keep trying to rise back up the rankings. And over the course of multiple tournaments, that kind of peak where you start to kind of uh, you know meet players who are you know going to outplay you, and you get knocked back down. At that point, gets moved up further and further. So you know, the first tournaments uh, you play. You know, every player is probably going to have more knowledge than you do. But as you keep playing, uh, the number of players that are going to be able to teach you those harsh lessons uh, easily is going to potentially uh, decrease. And so you sort of get a bit further up before you get knocked back down. And so you, know, you, you maybe start looking to win two or three games, and then you start looking to try to win four or five games. And at some point in the distant future, you start being able to you know, regularly win four or five games and sometimes win all six. Oh, fantastic! So you finished uh, day one with two wins and two losses, but you've uh, managed to play a, a variety of people, and and sounds like you held your own in at least three of them. And uh, Will's game, uh, can you just give us a quick rundown of that one? Sorry, I, I slightly skimmed over that. Um, so so th- this was one of those games where I probably made lots of like micro mistakes, where models were just in slightly the wrong positions. Uh, he had the Rohan Legendary Legion, the uh, the Theoden Pelennor Death Kill You <laughs> yes. All in a Turn Army, and and his build was ma- really maximizing that. I think he had uh, Theoden and six other characters and about ten Royal Guard, so the army was all about charging in and calling seven heroic combats and uh, you know, killing about twenty models in that that critical turn, and uh, and I just kind of let him do that uh, to some extent. I wasn't. Uh, yeah, wasn't able to take a, a good enough position. Uh, we were on the battlefield. We were playing another one of those uh, capture five point scenarios, and I just ceded the center to him, which meant that you know, once he charged in, my army mostly died. I didn't have any of the objectives, and so 
you know, was was uh, quite brutal and uh, over very quickly. And this uh, this tendency to give up the center of the battlefield is something I uh, it's a mistake I'm still making and need to work on. Uh, but what I did do, and the one kind of pat myself on the back thing I did was recognize that the game was looking really dire and finding a way that give myself a chance to win the game. So he's charged in with you know fifteen Rohan cavalry into my fairly thin line of uh, Urukai and Mortar Orcs, and I have. But uh, basically, I've tried to line up a hurl where I knock most of his characters off their horses. Uh, to get that hurl, I need to something with the Witch King, win the combat, call a heroic combat, then go into uh, Durnhelm win that combat and then hurl her down the line, which requires not only winning the first combat, but winning the second when we have the same fight value and then getting a high enough hurl. And uh, yes, so I, th- I think doing the math, it was something like a 20% chance to uh, knock all those characters down and be in a really good position. But when you go into a game and your best chance of winning is a 20% chance, if you roll well, it's not a good position to be in. So uh, yeah, the, the kind of mistakes that I made in the start were the, the things I need to learn from. But what I did at least manage to do was see a, like a two step move and a hurl that would have at least given me a pretty good chance, even if it was unlikely to come off. So uh, yeah, one of those things where I guess if you're outmatched and outgunned, uh, a slim chance of victory is at least still something to, uh, to be happy that you've uh, been able to try to take, even if you, need to play better to avoid getting into that bad position in the first place. That's actually not too bad because you feel like it's a 20% chance for that one. But once you get, get more sort of tricks in it and moves and things in, in your toolbox, you start, you start repeating those. So an army like the Rohan Legendary Legion is, is just absolute top tier. So it's really tough to beat. You've got to keep trying those things. So you try one, it will fail, have maybe a 20% chance. Then you do it again. You try something different that's got a 20% chance. And you keep piling that up and eventually you might get one that works. And, and you hope you get yeah, it before it, the time runs out. Yeah, I, and unfortunately, because of how easily Will had been able to get into my lines, um, yeah, it, I, w- I was very much one and done. Like, I, if this didn't go off, that, like that, that was the chance because uh, he did kill about twenty models in that turn when all was said and done. But, but if I play better and I can buy some more time, then as you say, I don't have to. That that kind of twenty percent chance doesn't have to come off the first time. You know, maybe you get two or three chances at it, and I guess that's the kind of uh, the sort of learning curve I'm trying to go for. Which is, you know, the, the next time I played Will, I think I was a better than twenty percent chance to win, and then hopefully when I play him again, I can get myself into a position where it's you know even better chances to win you know, against you know a very good player. So yeah, I guess uh, it's trying to find those sort of measuring sticks and ways of tracking progress is kind of difficult and I don't like to use results as a way to kind of assess or track my, you know, how much I'm learning because those can vary so much from tournament to tournament and chops and dice rolls and things. Whereas, yeah, trying to actually identify like specific learning things is maybe, maybe that's from being a teacher, but that's the thing I end up trying to focus on instead. Hmm. Now is uh, Will someone that's fun to play against? Because uh, I've heard good things about him. I know that he's he's a very good player, but I've heard mostly positive things about about him. Uh, so my Articon experience was uh, like, like part of what made it incredible was the like just my opponents. I had games against people from all over Europe, and everyone was extremely lovely the whole way through. Uh, yeah, as I was saying before. 
Uh, people were very happy to chat about games afterwards, you know, joke around a bit on the tabletop. Even if Smaug is sitting there not having killed a model for five turns, Tim's still laughing and chuckling. You know, Will was happy to sit down and like tell me what he would have done differently in that game. Uh, just uniformly excellent opponents all around. And that's basically been my experience through joining in the Lord of the Rings tournaments scene as a whole. Like, e- even the most competitive players are still but really nice and generous with their time. And uh, yeah, just the atmosphere at events has been really, uh, really positive, which has also the, been the case in other tournament systems as well. Like, I think these kind of hobbies tend to bring out the best in people and also bring out good people as well as the best of those people. So yeah, I, th- I think people are having a lot of fun, but they're also like nice people to begin with. Yeah, I agree with that. I think almost every gaming scene I've been involved in, and, and it's not a huge amount, but everyone sort of describes themselves as being the best gaming scene. And I think you're right. I think it's just that that the people who who don't fit that sort of that's a, that community don't really stay in it, and they they move to something else. And everyone else is pretty good and because you see the same people over and over again. You can't really afford to be a nasty person or someone who's not fun to play against because. Uh, you soon learn that people don't really want to to face you and you get a big reputation. Uh, And I I think you just have more fun when your opponent is having fun and that's, at the end of the day, what we're there for. Uh, And and part of the fun for me is, as this kind of chat is probably suggesting, is trying to be competitive and learn from mistakes. And I, I approach tabletop gaming more, more from like the kind of chess side of things than from the narrative side of things. So I'm... You know, I'm, I'm really trying to play it as a game and play as well as I can and uh, you know, be like, competitive in that sense, but not at the cost of you know, being a pleasant opponent and like trying to play in the right spirit. Um, it's just about you know, what you know, seeing the game in that way as, I guess, as a game rather than a storytelling device, which I think is the way that most tournaments are set up. Something like uh, Silmarilli is very much like, uh, from a different angle where you're uh, you, ha- you have different incentives and you're trying to do something different with the games like, like magic the gathering is probably a good example of a scene where uh, everyone is approaching well, not everyone but the vast majority of people are approaching it more from that competitive sort of angle and again not in the sense where they're unpleasant or like uh, being nasty about things just that everyone's turning up trying to win the tournament knowing that most of you know most of us won't but we're going to try we're going to give it our best shot and we're going to uh you know see how close we can get and so a bit more of a streamlining in the scene in that sense where more people are on the uh on the side of things of trying to uh you know win as many games as possible but you, you get much more of a mix in tabletop gaming tournaments where you have people who want to show off their army or want to treat each game a bit more as a narrative uh, a narrative thing than a competitive thing. Luckily, those kind of different approaches tend to find ways of working together and all getting what they want out of a tournament weekend, uh, whereas maybe in, uh, in some of those se- gaming scenes like Magic the Gathering, where it's a bit more streamlined in terms of what people are looking to get out of it, it's a bit easier to, uh, to accommodate everyone in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I was a bit curious about that because I know that people always comment about how nice everyone is on the scene and, and I, I find it an interesting thing to say because every other scene I've been on has been nice. So yeah, yeah, that's that's good to hear as well. It's good to, to hear that people are treating each other well. Uh, so that was all of day one. Day two. Oh no, sorry. Well, day three yes. or four or five, whatever day it is, the second day of the singles. 
honestly, the the tournament felt like it went for a couple of weeks, and I loved every minute of it. There was just so much packed into when when it came down to it, just three and a half days. Because yeah, the Thursday night drinks definitely counts as as part of the tournament experience. Certainly does, yes. Uh, so in round five, I was uh, playing against the Eagle Army. It was like Radagast on a sleigh, Gua here, and about four other eagles mm-hmm. in Reconnoiter. And <laughs> but running one of them off the board costs a hundred points of battlefield presence. Yes, which is quite a, like quite a good tension in that you know you can easily get an eagle off the board, but that leaves you with a really big gap that two or three orcs can fit th- or orakai can fit through. So the game actually played out. It ended up being quite a quite an interesting game, despite the sort of uh, mobility mismatches between the two armies. And uh, I, I guess when you've got another one of those skew armies that plays very differently, that can sometimes lead to scenarios being a bit awkward or one-sided. And that wasn't the case here. We had, uh, yeah, we, we both had really clear ways to win the game just by playing the scenario and running the right number of models off the board. I'm just curious, did you manage to break Radagast's staff? Did not. I also didn't think about it. Oh no! Uh, what I tried, <laughs> what I tried to do instead, I think was uh, w- was much more uh, more on brand for me was to charge him with the Witch King and uh, heroic strike, and uh, just try to kill him with uh, with fists and fury. Uh, I also had four or five Urukai into him as well. So uh, yeah, when I won the fight, it was just going to be uh, chopping him to bits. But instead of winning the fight, uh, I lost the fight because I did not roll a six, and he did, and I had used my last point of might to uh, to strike up, and uh, and then then it happened. Uh, somewhat uh. notorious uh, now, the Witch King flies on his fell beast into Radagast. Uh, you know, says that those famous words, "No man can kill me," and Radagast says, "I'm a man," and Sebastian says. <laughs> but I'm not. Uh, loses the fight. The, the Witch King and a bunch of orcs lose the fight. Radagast does nothing with his attacks. And then Sebastian hits and wounds the, win- the, the Witch King. Sixes and sixes. And I've got three fate and fail them all. <laughs> and, uh, and the Witch King dies to Sebastian. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, I should have seen that one coming. <laughs> yes, it's... Um, yeah, it, it was definitely a uh, the, the most uh, absurd sequence of, of dice-related things that that happened. So a, as this was going on, which was obviously the centerpiece of the fight, was the Witch King uh, reaching out and getting his hand spiked to death. But a, as this was going on, I was basically uh, running... I, I wasn't trying to fight the Eagles at all. I was just trying to run past them as much as possible and get as many models towards the board edge as I could before I broke. Maybe I could have tried to fight a normal battle and kill a bunch of eagles, but I decided to just try and play the scenario. And every time there was a gap, I would just uh, drop my crossbow and start running for the you know, running for the corners. And uh, managed to because the eagles needed to kind of uh, play backstop and stop that as much as possible. They weren't threatening to win on the scenario victory conditions themselves. So I managed to get four or five uruk high off uh, before I broke. And then uh, the Witch King died and the Eagles broke me, <laughs> at which point there was just a race for time of Eagles trying to get to the edge of the board before the game ended. And fortunately, uh, the game ended before they got there. But it was one of those, another one of those situations where I wasn't going to try to win the game conventionally uh, in terms of uh, you know, by killing more of my opponent. And uh, fortunately, 
I didn't try to do that because if I had, uh, losing the Witch King like that would have been a real, like, a, a huge blow. Uh, but because I, I'd been uh, running off the board wherever possible to begin with, the Eagles were basically playing on their half of the board. So even once they'd kind of broken the back of my army, it still took them two or three turns to get off the board and the game was able to end in that time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that sounds a very, very fun, eventful game. <laughs> yes. Uh, un- unrelatedly, I haven't taken a Witch King on Felbeast since uh, since this tournament. Uh, not, I, I just, Definitely not because I'm still scarred from the Sebastian incident. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's definitely got to be unrelated. We don't have any rumours about that. <laughs> yes, he's definitely not scared of a tiny hedgehog. No, oh, that, that, yeah, Sebastian, scary stuff. Yeah, especially on the sleigh because you don't really see him around. He could be anywhere. Yeah, well, exactly. Just uh, and once he gets through that faceplate, there's all just uh, lots of air for him to get spiking. Yeah, I'll get inside that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a concern. Okay, so so well, not too bad so far. What's what's next? And uh, and the last round of the tournament, it, I was playing against a Gondor and Rohan uh, alliance, which it was apart from the fact that I had quite a few uh, quite a few Isengard things in the army, it was a, a pretty thematic. Uh, way to end things, a sort of Pelennor Fields, you know, Theoden and the Witch King facing off. Although uh, where I had some Isengard, uh, my opponent had Theodred, so it wasn't wasn't quite out of out of the books, but uh was a, there, there was at least a bit of uh yeah, a bit of storyline there. I I was able to set up quite defensively in some forests. Again, I had 10 crossbows, so I had a pretty significant shooting advantage and the Rohan army, or the Rohan contingent of the Gondor Rohan alliance didn't want to go into forest it didn't want to sit there getting shot by uh, crossbows and losing horses so it just you know it had to run at me as fast as possible and uh, th- this was one game where i was able to pull off a couple of really really annoying i think for my opponent uh, maneuvers with some uh, with my two morgul knights uh, where his big block of gondor infantry i just was able to charge in with the the morgul knights into a couple of models and then he has to take a lot of fear tests to be able to to kind of countercharge them. And if he doesn't, then I'm probably winning the fight with uh, fight four and multiple attacks. And so these, I had two Morgul knights that basically bogged down his uh, his big Gondor contingent for a couple of turns. And as that was happening, I was able to shoot across at the Rohan half of his army, which was also having to charge at sort of the full part of my army. And so we ended up with that kind of, I, I guess, the ideal situation where... You know, three quarters of my army is fighting half of his army, and uh, and that's always going to you know, going to favour me. Uh, I managed to do some some more thematic stuff like uh, compelling Theoden out from behind a building and then charging him with the Witch King and uh, yeah, and killing him that way. And uh, that also then meant that Theodred could see the Witch King and had to charge the Witch King and then uh, got the same kind of treatment. So. Uh, yeah, the, the Witch King basically did uh, did all the killing of the Rohan force himself uh, after he'd killed the characters, just uh, flapped around and killed a couple of uh, couple of Rohan riders a turn as the uh, the Gondor contingent was kind of slogging across the battlefield. Uh, after they dealt with the Morgul Knights, they then killed my crossbows, but that still left most of my force intact and was able to kind of pivot around and fight them as they as they. Uh, kind of caught up to the Rohan half of the army. So it was another one of those uh, good good terrain, very helpful, but also, uh, yeah, sort of a, a, a little bit of a mismatch where, again, the evil army having the shooting advantage and then being able to use that to sort of split up 
and force the good army into bad positions uh, was really helpful again there. Oh wow! So you've done you've done some some good things at this event so far. What was your final result? I ended up with four wins and two losses, and I think I got, I got a couple of the oaths as well. Uh, for long time listeners of the show, uh, will remember talk about how difficult the oaths are to get, and also how uh, how important they are in terms of uh, tiebreakers in a two hundred player event. So getting a couple was not at the top, but was definitely very useful and i think was sort of uh you know most people were getting around one or maybe two uh two of the oaths as a kind of tournament average so it definitely meant that my tiebreakers were uh kind of okay which was important because of course what we forgot in all of this is that there is a team aspect to Articon and team australia is competing for the honor and glory of the nation yes 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 well i think we should talk about that because you were representing Australia for the first time. I think it's the first time they had an eligible team to be able to, to compete for it. So let's spoil it a little bit. How did they go? <laughs> uh, so so th- there were two team categories. One for, uh, I think, UK teams, although it might just have been English teams. And the other category was for the rest of the world. And so, uh, yeah, Australia, d- despite me having relocated to the UK, we were competing uh, against the rest of the world and ended up coming third in that category, which was, uh, it was really pleasing because we, we only had uh, five people on the team and there were you know, teams from uh, Germany and Denmark and Poland and so, some of them had loads of players on them. Uh, so, so it definitely felt like not quite David and Goliath because you know when you've got people like Kylie and Matt on your team, you're always going to be uh, you know, expected to do fairly, you know, reasonably well. But uh, yeah, a small team... Uh, Fighting against the odds and ended up, uh, yeah, ended up doing uh, doing quite nicely uh, in the end. That's really good. That's that's much better than whatever they got eleventh last year. Or um, so, yeah, fantastic. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, and um, yeah, Matt's really come along. He we used to make so much fun of him. If you listen to old episodes of the podcast about what a terrible player he was, but he's developed over time as well. So it gives hope for everyone. Yeah, that, that's uh, and a really really uh, good approach to friendship as well. The, the more you tease your friends, the more they'll be motivated to uh, you know, e- eventually destroy you on the field of battle. Yeah, that's uh, is that just an Australian thing, or do you find that happens in a lot of places around the world? Um, I, I only have limited experience with uh, with the rest of the world, but that that kind of uh, good natured uh, good natured teasing is definitely something that you'd see in Scotland as well where uh, oh good yeah you know, p- people expect to you know sort of give a bit of stick and get a bit of stick and uh, yeah and, and when it uh, as it seems to have when it when it uh, you know, ends up motivating Matt to uh, you know really like knuckle down and you know improve on the the parts of his game that that were there from the sounds of things you know he uh, what top 10 at Articon and uh, won the Australian Masters so uh, turns out it's uh, it's worked pretty well yeah, it definitely has. Definitely has for him. He's definitely been motivated. Yeah, uh, we we got I think the first article episode we did uh, last year, I believe, or the year before, year before by now. We got some comments, especially from North America, where people were surprised about our conversations and our interactions with each other, and 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 basically the teasing of each other, and they thought that was um, more than they're used to. And I think it's probably because we just don't have as much 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 weapons at hand in the the Hobbit uh, recording <laughs> studio, so uh, so we can tend to yell at each other, and there's no repercussions for it. Maybe if we we were differently inclined. It might be a bit different. If we just arm Australians, then we'll all end up being uh, much more polite. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's how you make people polite. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's too late for it. I think we just keep going with how we're going. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's uh, there's definitely a sense of uh, yeah, like knowing your audience or uh, you know, uh, you know, being cognizant of how people will react to that kind of humor before you start deploying it. Um, and obviously when you're already good friends with someone, you sort of know how they will, uh, for the most part, you know, how they'll, uh, they'll respond to, to those kind of jests. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, that's a good, good solid coverage from the, for the, the article. so thanks for talking about that, Chris. Is there anything you want to add finally, anything you want to do to, to conclude any heartfelt, uh, thanking of your opponent that I can interrupt? Look, I, rather than thanking one opponent individually, uh, I, I guess a general thank you to the British Lord of the Rings scene in general. Uh, I, you know, I didn't know anyone over here beforehand. Uh, while I played some uh, British uh, Warhammer tournaments last time I was over here, and still know some people from that scene, I didn't know anyone walking into the uh, the Hobbit games and Hobbit tournaments. And it's been, yeah, everyone's been extremely welcoming, uh, very friendly, and uh, especially the Scottish players who have been, uh, yeah, really accommodating and uh, you know, going out of their way to, you know, come to Edinburgh to play games and, uh, you, know, you know, trying to learn the game basically from scratch and, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, playing loads of games. There's uh, not only a massive scene in the UK in general, but in Scotland, there are just so many people playing all of the time that uh yeah it's been a fantastic experience to really hit the ground running and just uh, you know play like a tournament a month like more tournaments than i ever did back in australia uh even in game systems that i've been playing for much longer so it's been a been a really fantastic experience on the hobby front moving to the other side of the world and still having lots of people to basically share a hobby and uh kind of shared passions with that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really good that, that the scene's uh, as big as it is at the moment, and especially in the UK. I think a lot of us are jealous about just the frequency of events that, that happened over there, but we're, we're holding our own in the rest of the world. There's lots of listeners from around that have lots of local events, so it's really good that it's a it's still a game that's going on worldwide, and the community's really driving it, and, and the passion means that it's going to stay around for a while. Yeah, and I think Australia is, um, once you factor in the population size difference, um, Australia seems to be doing you know, really well. Like 60 player events and things are like, they're big events no matter which part of the world you're in. And uh, while the UK can have them more regularly, it's also got three times the population and none of the desert that you have to travel across to get from one tournament to the next. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the Australian scene seems like, really vibrant as well from uh, from what I've been able to see. Uh, being uh, in a couple of the, uh, the Facebook chats and the Facebook pages, I managed to see a bit of what's going on uh, without actually being there, especially when it comes to the uh, the meme wars, which seem to have started again. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, yeah, we've got um, an event coming up very shortly, so it's a bit of pride in making fun of each other before the actual event, but it's all very uh, very tongue-in-cheek and, and a lot of fun, and, and yeah, it's good to see what people come up with. So it looks like, a yeah, again, a really fun scene to be a part of, and that kind of... Uh, Banter once you know once people know each other, that kind of uh, banter is a really big part of uh, at least for me what what leads to tournament weekends being just so much fun is that playing the game is fun, but hanging out with your friends for a weekend is uh, very much the uh, experience for me so much more entertaining than you know just a weekend of playing a few games is having that many people who are that invested in the same hobby uh, in the room at once and. You know, the more people you know in the scene, the more fun uh, those end up being because it really is just a weekend away with mates where you you also get to play your favourite hobby. Absolutely. Well, 
Well, thank you very much, Chris. That's been Articon Part 2. We'll get Part 3 out very shortly. I know there's been a big gap between them, but but we finally got our, our recording schedule all sorted out. So we'll get this episode out soon. We'll get the next one out soon, and away we'll go. Thank you for the listeners that have stayed this long. Uh, I've had, we've been having messages from concerned listeners about... Uh, the fires that are happening in Australia at the moment. We're very fortunate that, that none of us have been involved in that as yet, so that's good. But, um, yeah, it, it is a bit of a stressful time at the moment, so thanks for all the well wishes, and um, we're all okay. And uh, to the people that aren't, well, well, good luck with that as well. Hopefully that it all sorts itself out in the, the best way it possibly can. Remember, listener, traps win games. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on thegreendragonpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.